we continue with the opinion of the court in 303 Creative, v. Ellenus. Part 3. Applying these principles to this case, we align ourselves with much of the Tenth Circuit's analysis. The Tenth Circuit held that the wedding websites Ms. Smith seeks to create qualify as pure speech under this court's precedence. We agree. It is a conclusion that follows directly from the party's stipulations. They have stipulated that Ms. Smith's websites promise to contain images, words, symbols, and other modes of expression. They have stipulated that every website will be her original customized creation. And they have stipulated that Ms. Smith will create these websites to communicate ideas, namely, to celebrate and promote the couple's wedding and unique love story, and to celebrate and promote what Ms. Smith understands to be a true marriage. A hundred years ago, Ms. Smith might have furnished her services using pen and paper. Those services are no less protected speech today because they are conveyed with a voice that resonates farther than it could from any soapbox. All manner of speech, from pictures, films, paintings, drawings, and engravings, to oral utterance and the printed word, qualify for the First Amendment's protections. No less can hold true when it comes to speech like Ms. Smith's conveyed over the Internet. We further agree with the Tenth Circuit that the wedding websites Ms. Smith seeks to create involve her speech. Again, the party's stipulations lead the way to that conclusion. As the parties have described it, Ms. Smith intends to vet each prospective project to determine whether it is one she is willing to endorse. She will consult with clients to discuss their unique stories as source material, and she will produce a final story for each couple using her own words and her own original artwork. Of course, Ms. Smith's speech may combine with the couple's in the final product, but for purposes of the First Amendment, that changes nothing. An individual does not forfeit constitutional protection simply by combining multifarious voices in a single communication. As surely as Ms. Smith seeks to engage in protected First Amendment speech, Colorado seeks to compel speech Ms. Smith does not wish to provide. As the Tenth Circuit observed, if Ms. Smith offers wedding websites celebrating marriages she endorses, the state intends to force her to create custom websites celebrating other marriages she does not. Colorado seeks to compel this speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. Indeed, the Tenth Circuit recognized that the coercive elimination of dissenting ideas about marriage constitutes Colorado's very purpose in seeking to apply its law to Ms. Smith. We part ways with the Tenth Circuit only when it comes to the legal conclusions that follow. 
While that court thought Colorado could compel speech from Ms. Smith consistent with the Constitution, our First Amendment precedents laid out above teach otherwise. In Hurley, the court found that Massachusetts impermissibly compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment when it sought to force parade organizers to accept participants who would affect their message. In Dale, the court held that New Jersey intruded on Boy Scouts' First Amendment rights when it tried to require the group to propound a point of view contrary to its beliefs by directing its membership choices. And in Barnett, this court found impermissible coercion when West Virginia required schoolchildren to recite a pledge that contravened their convictions on threat of punishment or expulsion. Here, Colorado seeks to put Miss Smith to a similar choice. If she wishes to speak, she must either speak as the state demands or face sanctions for expressing her own beliefs. Sanctions that may include compulsory participation in remedial training, filing periodic compliance reports as officials deem necessary, and paying monetary fines. Under our precedents, that is enough more than enough to represent impermissible abridgment of the First Amendment's right to speak freely. Consider what a contrary approach would mean. Under Colorado's logic, the government may compel anyone who speaks for pay on a given topic to accept all commissions on that same topic, no matter the underlying message, if the topic somehow implicates a customer's statutorily protected trait. Taken seriously, that principle would allow the government to force all manner of artists, speechwriters, and others whose services involve speech to speak what they do not believe on pain of penalty. The government could require an unwilling Muslim movie director to make a film with a Zionist message, or an atheist muralist to accept a commission celebrating evangelical zeal so long as they would make films or murals for other members of the public with different messages. Equally, the government could force a male website designer married to another man to design websites for an organization that advocates against same-sex marriage. Countless other creative professionals, too, could be forced to choose between remaining silent, producing speech that violates their beliefs, or speaking their minds and incurring sanctions for doing so. As our precedents recognize, the First Amendment tolerates none of that. In saying this much, we do not question the vital role public accommodations laws play in realizing the civil rights of all Americans. This court has recognized that governments in this country have a compelling interest in eliminating discrimination in places of public accommodation. This court has recognized, too, that public accommodations laws vindicate the deprivation of personal dignity that surely accompanies denials of equal access to public establishments. Over time, Governments in this country have expanded public accommodations laws in notable ways, too. Statutes like Colorado's grow from non-discrimination rules the common law sometimes imposed on common carriers and places of traditional public accommodation, like hotels and restaurants, 
Often, these enterprises exercised something like monopoly power, or hosted or transported others or their belongings, much like Bailey's. Over time, some states, Colorado included, have expanded the reach of these non-discrimination rules to cover virtually every place of business engaged in any sales to the public. Importantly, states have also expanded their laws to prohibit more forms of discrimination. Today, for example, approximately half of the states have laws like Colorado's that expressly prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And, as we have recognized, this is entirely unexceptional. States may protect gay persons just as they can protect other classes of individuals in acquiring whatever products and services they choose on the same terms and conditions as are offered to other members of the public. And there are no doubt innumerable goods and services that no one could argue implicate the First Amendment. Consistent with all of this, Ms. Smith herself recognizes that Colorado and other states are generally free to apply their public accommodations laws, including their provisions protecting gay persons, to a vast array of businesses. At the same time, this court has also recognized that no public accommodations law is immune from the demands of the Constitution. In particular, this court has held public accommodation statutes can sweep too broadly when deployed to compel speech. In Hurley, the court commented favorably on Massachusetts' public accommodations law that made it plain it could not be applied to expressive activity to compel speech. In Dale, the court observed that New Jersey's public accommodations law had many lawful applications but held that it could not justify such a severe intrusion on the Boy Scouts' rights to freedom of expressive association. And once more, what was true in those cases must hold true here. When a state public accommodations law and the Constitution collide, there can be no question which must prevail. Nor is it any answer, as the Tenth Circuit seemed to suppose, that Ms. Smith's services are unique. In some sense, of course, her voice is unique. So is everyone's. But that hardly means a state may co-opt an individual's voice for its own purposes. In Hurley, the veterans had an inevitable outlet for speech. After all, their parade was a notable and singular event. In Dale, the Boy Scouts offered what some might consider a unique experience. But in both cases, this court held that the state could not use its public accommodation statute to deny speakers the right to choose the content of their own messages. Were the rule otherwise, the better the artist, the finer the writer, the more unique his talent, the more easily his voice could be conscripted to disseminate the government's preferred messages. That would not respect the First Amendment. More nearly, it would spell its demise. Part 4 Before us, Colorado appears to distance itself from the Tenth Circuit's reasoning. Now, the state seems to acknowledge that the First Amendment does forbid it from coercing Ms. Smith to create websites endorsing same-sex marriage or expressing any other message with which she disagrees. 
Instead, Colorado devotes most of its efforts to advancing an alternative theory for affirmance. The state's alternative theory runs this way. To comply with Colorado law, the state says, all Ms. Smith must do is repurpose websites she will create to celebrate marriages she does endorse for marriages she does not. She sells a product to some, the state reasons, so she must sell the same product to all. At bottom, Colorado's theory rests on a belief that the Tenth Circuit erred at the outset when it said this case implicates pure speech. Instead, Colorado says, this case involves only the sale of an ordinary commercial product and any burden on Ms. Smith's speech is purely incidental. On the state's telling, then, speech more or less vanishes from the picture and, with it, any need for First Amendment scrutiny. In places, the dissent seems to advance the same line of argument. This alternative theory, however, is difficult to square with the party's stipulations. As we have seen, the state has stipulated that Ms. Smith does not seek to sell ordinary commercial good, but intends to create customized and tailored speech for each couple. The state has stipulated that each website 303 Creative designs and creates is an original, customized creation for each client. The state has stipulated, too, that Ms. Smith's wedding websites will be expressive in nature using text, graphics, and in some cases videos to celebrate and promote the couple's wedding and unique love story. As the case comes to us, then, Colorado seeks to compel just the sort of speech that it tacitly concedes lies beyond the reach of its powers. Of course, as the state emphasizes, Ms. Smith offers her speech for pay and does so through 303 Creative LLC, a company in which she is the sole member owner. But none of that makes a difference. Does anyone think a speechwriter loses his First Amendment right to choose for whom he works if he accepts money in return? Or that a visual artist who accepts commissions from the public does the same? Many of the world's great works of literature and art were created with an expectation of compensation. Nor, this court has held, do speakers shed their First Amendment protections by employing the corporate form to disseminate their speech. This fact underlies our cases involving everything from movie producers to book publishers to newspapers. Colorado next urges us to focus on the reason Ms. Smith refuses to offer the speech it seeks to compel. She refuses, the state insists, because she objects to the protected characteristics of certain customers. But once more, the parties' stipulations speak differently. The parties agree that Ms. Smith will gladly create custom graphics and websites for gay, lesbian, or bisexual clients, or for organizations run by gay, lesbian, or bisexual persons, so long as the custom graphics and websites do not violate her beliefs. That is a condition, the parties acknowledge, Ms. Smith applies to all customers. 
Ms. Smith stresses, too, that she has not and will not create expressions that defy any of her beliefs for any customer, whether that involves encouraging violence, demeaning another person, or promoting views inconsistent with her religious commitments. Nor, in any event, do the First Amendment's protections belong only to speakers whose motives the government finds worthy. Its protections belong to all, including to speakers whose motives others may find misinformed or offensive. Failing all else, Colorado suggests that this court's decision in Federal Election Commission v. Wisconsin Right to Life, Inc., 2007, or FAIR, supports affirmance. In FAIR, a group of schools challenged a law requiring them, as a condition of accepting federal funds, to permit military recruiters space on campus on equal terms with other potential employers. The only expressive activity required of the law schools, the court found, involved the posting of logistical notices along these lines. Quote, the U.S. Army recruiter will meet interested students in room 123 at 11 a.m., unquote. And, the court reasoned, compelled speech of this sort was incidental and a far cry from the speech at issue in our leading First Amendment precedents that have established the principle that freedom of speech prohibits the government from telling people what they must say. It is a far cry from this case, too. To be sure, our cases have held that the government may sometimes require the dissemination of purely factual and uncontroversial information, particularly in the context of commercial advertising. But this case involves nothing like that. Here, Colorado does not seek to impose an incidental burden on speech. It seeks to force an individual to utter what is not in her mind about a question of political and religious significance. And that, Fair reaffirmed, is something the First Amendment does not tolerate. No government, Fair recognized, may affect a speaker's message by forcing her to accommodate other views. No government may alter the expressive content of her message, and no government may interfere with her desired message. This opinion has been divided into multiple episodes, and we've just come to the end of the second. But don't worry, next episode will pick up exactly where this one left off, and next episode will be the final in this opinion. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>